Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Good morning, and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. This episode is slightly different than some of the other ones. So Peter's a good friend. I've known him for a number of years. He's the vice president of investments at Wells Fargo in Oklahoma. I know him back from my JP Morgan days. But in this role, he works with high net worth individuals to develop their customized investment strategies. So all day long, this guy is monitoring the markets, different asset classes, and he can speak intelligently on every asset class there is. So. He is one of the smartest investment professionals I know, and he really shares some keen insight on macro global markets and what could be next. So there's a lot of volatility out there. Uh, Markets are moving this way and that. As you know, on this podcast, we are big fans of alternative assets and things that aren't fluctuating in value every single day. But it's good to take this step back and talk about the macro picture, what's going on out there. In this conversation, we talk about current equity markets. We talk about the US dollar or FX, gold and other alternatives like single family rentals and overall asset allocation. I think this is a really good wide ranging conversation about global financial markets with Peter. And I really hope you enjoy it. I'm here with Peter Harlan in Oklahoma. And Peter is a vice president of investments at Wells Fargo. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy Peter's outlook, macro outlook. We're going to talk about a number of things. So welcome, Peter. Thank you. It's good to be here, Ben. Awesome to see you. Let's start off just with um, your background, who you are, where you are, what you're doing with uh, Wells Fargo. Sure. So my name is Peter Harlan. I uh, grew up here in in the U.S. and um, in Oklahoma. Um, I Went to school for finance and economics, double major, and I went to JP Morgan um, right out of school um, in Chicago, um, in Denver for, for over three years. Moved with them back to, that's where I met Ben actually years ago, and um, moved uh, back to Oklahoma um, once I started a family. And um, I've since moved to Wells Fargo, still in, always worked in the wealth and investment management businesses predominantly with high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, helping manage risk across their entire balance sheet, many of which are business owners and most of their financial assets are non-financial assets. So often um, we work with them on the publicly traded investment side, but really kind of dig a lot deeper in terms of preserving wealth and uh, managing our own taxes and investments. But investments are what brought me into this business. I'm, I'm a markets junkie. Um, I love all things uh, financial markets and, and just a, a constant student of things. So um, that's a little bit about my background. No, oh, you are a constant student. I met Peter in 2013 or 14 in Denver. Yeah. We worked together at JP Morgan and you're always curious, always finding these little nooks and crannies of the financial markets, which I really appreciate. I never have heard the story. Why financial markets? What initially drew you to financial markets? It's a funny, I mean, story, but I actually can pinpoint the exact like day and time. Basically, I was probably about twelve, um, and I went. My dad was going to some like his financial advisor's little conference um, deal, and I can tell you the investment company. There was an American Funds wholesaler at this thing, and he pulls up these charts and is talking about markets and stuff. I'm this little kid, didn't know anything about anything, but my dad just randomly brought me along and. Um, I was just, I was enthralled. And uh, so 
always loved it. It didn't really start too deeply in those, those years, but by the time I was 16 or 17, 18, I don't remember exactly when, um, probably about 17, 18, I opened a, uh, a brokerage account. Um, I think initially it was a joint account because I wasn't old enough oh, yeah. um, and started trading. And so that would have been right around the financial crisis and um, started trading personally then uh, all through college and was just enthralled with it. So that, that's kind of, that was the inception of and just have always been um, enthralled by it ever since. Awesome. American funds got you in. And then you looked at yeah. their like six and a half percent front end low. If I, if I invested then at the age of 12, I might just be breaking even from the yeah. charges. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I have some American funds that I bought around the same time. Uh, so yeah. sim- similar. I, uh, I think I found out about compounding interest and just freaked out. I mean, I, uh, for, for, I went without presence and uh, asked for stocks for my like 16th birthday onward. Yeah, that was better than any toy I could have ever gotten. So this year, it's been, it's been crazy with the stock market. I kind of wanted to start with your kind of macro outlook for equities, uh, just from your view. Yeah, that's right. I work for Wells Fargo, but um, this is an investment advice, and, and this may not represent the views of, of my firm um, specifically, so I um, take it more as my personal views. But um, yeah, so this has been an unbelievable uh, year. Uh, basically the fastest of all time uh, peak to trough decline. So basically markets were at 52 week highs and we reached 52 week lows within a period of three weeks, which has never been done before. So after that, we, we then proceeded to have the quickest recovery we've ever seen as well. Um, thanks to unprecedented fiscal and monetary policy, meaning fiscal, the policies coming out of Congress and monetary, the policies coming out of the Federal Reserve Bank of the U.S., basically printing more money than was printed in the wake of the 0809 crisis um, over the course of five years. We did it in two months this time. So what we've seen is just an unprecedented gravity-defying um, rise out of it, I think just thanks to liquidity. So what was interesting in March, um, we saw liquidity conditions got horrible. I mean, you, I was trading every day and um, stocks were illiquid, um, bonds, even high quality bonds were illiquid. And you kind of saw that somewhat in the treasury market too. The treasury market even locked up a little bit. The 30-year treasury, you know, traded as low as about 71 basis points. I think the very low intraday, I think close at 90 um, at one point. Um, but the intraday low is around 70 basis for the 30-year treasury. People who piled into the treasury on that day proceeded to lose about 20% of their principal value over the next seven to eight trading days as the 30-year treasury traded to 178. So there's incredible amounts of illiquidity that occurred. The Fed started to support liquidity and then um, basically became a put option on risk as they announced more and more programs that were bailing out pretty much all of corporate America, um, direct uh, bond issuance lines, um, open market purchases across treasuries, MBS, um, corporate bonds, um, and even high yield ETFs that they're purchasing through BlackRock or via BlackRock. Just unprecedented things we ever seen before. So um, it was kind of an easy rally to miss because so much happened within two months that last go round. And if you kind of discount the history at all, last go round, it took us four or five years to do what we did in two months. So it's been a, a crazy volatile period. And kind of, I, I look at things and here we are pretty much right back where we were, how I was feeling in December of January last year before this whole event, where you look at um, equity market valuations, to your point, Ben, are insane. And the only way you can you can prop them up is when you look at things like free cash flow yield, the 10-year treasury from a valuation standpoint. And I think that's a little shaky because 
we're at all-time lows for 10-year treasuries. And and so I don't necessarily see that as, as playing out. There's a lot in there, Un- indeed. Uh, I'm curious, so like with this massive quick drawdown, um, it seems like over the past 10 plus years, these drawdowns have gotten, uh, the swings are w- much more uh, wild. Is this a product of everybody just being over leveraged? The prevalence of passive vehicles like ETFs becoming more popular and it's kind of the tail wagging the dog? Or what's what's kind of the driver of these massive swings as of late? Algo trading? I don't know. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I'd say there's three things. And uh, if you look at price charts, even as somebody who maybe doesn't follow markets, some of these steady, just linear rises in stocks, especially over the last month or two, are not natural. That's not how price equilibrium is found. Ultimately, price is just determined by buys and sells. And usually that's somewhat, you know, chunky and and like Ben's indicating, it's not normal the way things look right now from the standpoint of of how stocks trade. I think there's three things that that have contributed to it. One is absolutely ETF ownership, where you just have blanket ownership across market constituents. You start selling ETF whole scale and you know, big institutions dumping those ETFs while well, everything sells in tandem. Everything's very correlated. And conversely, if they're buying and steadily buying ETFs, it's just buying the same stocks every single day in the same amounts. Computer trading absolutely has a lot to do with it as well. Algorithmic trading is, I think, something like 80% of market trading now. I mean, it's, it's dominating um, computer and electronic trading. Not that all money is run by computers, but certainly um, if you're working a large order, you're letting a, a computer work it for you um, using percent of volume or BWAP trading um, versus actually manually working any order. So that's why you could see one thing that was interesting is the New York Stock Exchange had all their floor traders off the floor for most of this event. I was worried about it initially, but there were actually no problems at all. So that was kind of interesting, but it also is telling in terms of where we're at with that. So I think basically what you've seen is these trend following strategies that once the trend gets set, they just follow the trend and momentum trading and momentum strategies dominated performance. So if you have momentum as a stock, you could go to a hundred times forward PE and it almost doesn't matter. Um, If you don't, then yeah, you're left to kind of chop around and you see that with chunks of the market, like energy sector, complete junk. You don't see any momentum trading there. You don't see any of these charts, financials, same story. Um, a lot of industrials, same story. If you get into the sexier names, these trend-following computer strategies are just driving markets. There's something like 20 names that have driven a lot of the performance um, across all markets, um, and they're just they're pretty linear. The third thing I would say is just information um, dissemination, whether it's um, price quotes or just social sentiment and and mood. I mean, I think you just see a quicker you know wave of fear grip people as everybody gets access to information all the time and, and much quicker than they did before. And even, even 10 or 15 years ago, we didn't have this, this hand device tied to us that just pumped information to us. Now we do. So I think you just have to get used to, this is absolutely the new normal. It's going to be very hard. Um, and I think it's a different period where when you're trying to find opportunities to buy, it's almost like you just have to look at price and absolute terms and valuation that you believe in put your money in because you're not going to outsmart the computers from, you know, buying some dip that they, that they didn't, that they didn't plan. And so to speak. So the, the short liquidity is just going to be, is what it is. And, and you've got to 
be more strategic and forward looking um, to pick your spots. So, or conversely, if you're a trader, you can follow these momentums, I think pretty, pretty rigorously um, and just make sure you're on the side of momentum and not fighting it. I definitely agree with that. And, you know, siding with momentum, piling into these ETFs, you effectively are, right? Because that's, yeah. you know, it's market cap weighted. The ones that keep going up, getting more allocation, getting more funds from this fund flows. It's this pretty wild market that we're seeing here. Like you said, I mean, momentum has absolutely dominated over the past few years or more than that decade. You know, both of us are, 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 are value investors at heart. Do you yeah. start to see this rotation back to value or you think we're just disconnected? It's a momentum world and just going to get worse or better if you're a momentum trader, right? <laughs> yeah, it has to come, come down to earth um, eventually. I think with the flood of, of liquidity that's been pumped in, um, this could easily go on for six months, maybe a year. You know, I, I don't know if it goes that long or not. When you talk about the past decade, I would say, yeah, momentum absolutely plays a role in it. But I think part of the story there is just the big get bigger in this world and being technology oriented allows you to grow. I think the struggle has been as you go from an economy that's very good manufacturing oriented, you tend to rely on population growth and things like that to really um, grow the economy. The other disruptor, though, is technology. Technology is uh, somewhat, uh, you know, deflationary, but it all it makes our lives better ultimately, and and it can scale and the margins and, and cash flow and all that. So a lot of, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I mean, you make a great point. I was looking at, I was listening to Jeff Gunlock's um, call, who's brilliant bond investor, the founder of Double Line Capital. Definitely recommend him as a good bearish listen. He's always bearish, but he. Uh, he pointed out that if you take out Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft from the last decade of performance, the S&P 500 actually doesn't look a lot better than you know the MSCI or MSCI EM, which have gone practically nowhere over that time period, annualized maybe two or three percent versus the you know eight to ten percent we've seen um, over the last decade in the S&P 500. So to Ben's point, 25 percent of the index is across five names. Um, if you take those out, there's actually not a lot of juice left in, the, in that return. So owning big, long-term disruptive names is the true you know, way to find growth because we're just not growing in the same way we, we did you know, 30 to 50 years ago because I think mostly because population growth has slowed um, a lot and you're seeing uh, kind of having to look toward um, innovation and technology for the true growth now. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's wild that, you know, I, I think before we started, right, I was saying that I missed out on a lot of these crazy growth stocks, but in reality, they make up 25% of the S&P. So mm -hmm. I was actually just looking at the uh, JP Morgan Guide to the Markets, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll link to it in the show yeah. notes. I still still love looking through it. I mean, the, the data that they synthesize for this thing is great. But looking at that, the S&P 500 is expensive on all counts, basically, versus its historical means. But if the constituents of this S&P 500 are changing so much from this industrial area to this new tech growth, like much higher margins, much higher profitability growth rates, you know, now they make up 25% of, of the S&P 500, maybe they're not as overvalued as we think when just, you know, broad brush looking at the S&P 500. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to think about that, you know, 
yeah, who who knew long ago when Jim Cramer was pounding the table about Fang stocks, how, how yeah. accurate that was, right? It's your point on fundamentals. Ultimately, like the basic valuation, and you know this better than I, Ben. You you're you know you have the chart financial analyst designation, and you are you're a sharp sharp guy. But it's all about return of your investment, you know, return of cash flow and, and valuing that cash flow plus any terminal value. And I, I don't know when, when Apple, even though they have a, a, a boatload of cash, when they're trailing in forward PE are over 30 times for a somewhat consumer oriented stock, when there's a lot of uncertainty as to how the consumer gets back to work in America, because no doubt the pain's been taken away. Um, in the near term, and probably we'll see another tranche of, of payments of some sort because we've got an election pending. But what happens next year? I mean, if we go full sort of down the path of socialism, then you can't have those valuations anymore because socialism does stymie uh, innovation. And, and there's a reason why you've seen most of the innovation in the last couple of decades come out of the U.S. is because we allow people to try all kinds of crazy things take on debt, fail, you know, succeed, and see the benefits of that. And I think when you see a much more heavy government overhead, then, then it's likely that we see less uh, you know, entrepreneurial innovation. So I think that's um, pretty well proven if you look at case studies. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a scary precedent we've started in this path we're going down. With all of this unprecedented quantitative easing, all of these things, I mean, where do you think, where do you see this going? Yeah, I mean, I think the last month is is kind of indicative of where we might be. Um, we've pretty much been broadly sideways, with obviously some exceptions uh, of names that have gone higher. But I think there's a there's a number of things at play. Probably stock markets, in my in my view, kind of go sideways to to maybe drifting down throughout the rest of this year. You know, timing is is almost impossible to know, and we've certainly on the bull case got a flood of of cash out there. Um, some of the things that are at work though around the world are, I think, concerning. I think geopolitics is one of the bigger. It's going to be continue to be one of the bigger things going forward. The relationship between China and us and the rest of the world um, and associated currencies. Uh, what the U.S. has done on the back of our dollar strength, because that's another key point in this crisis we saw unprecedented dollar strength as the global flight to safety. Now, a lot of the reason for that is because 50% of global payments are made in USD. And so if you have a pending obligation and or your assets are financially setting and settling in US dollar, you have to have dollar to prevent margin calls because you can't settle them in your local currency if you're exposed to US markets, which a lot of people around the world are um, financial markets. And so there was this massive surge to US dollar. You saw the DXY trade over 100 um, and for good reason. We may see a little bit of strength, um, continue strength in, in the dollar um, at times, but what we've subsequently done as the US is put our foot on the gas in terms of we are in this advantage position we're going to take advantage of it, and that's what we've done. So we've already added four to five trillion to our debt load. We're probably going to be 125, maybe even more than that, of GDP debt to GDP ratio, 125 percent, because um, at the same time our GDP is contracting um, in this year. At some point, we do rely on the world to support our currency. So my whole point is there is likely to be a lot more volatility in currencies around the world. And there's a high probability, in my view, that um, there has to be more conventions and more you know, 
actual interaction about what are we going to do about our currencies because ultimately those are the transfer of wealth between countries. We've seen that time and time again um, in the wake of wars. I mean, you could almost equate what we've gone through as the wake of a war. I mean, each, each economy and country has kind of thrown what they can at it and they're absolutely writing the checks that they can write on the back of their currencies and, and debt loads. But that sort of balancing out will have to come in the, in the years to come. So you might look at someone like China that, you know, took a much more authoritarian view, locked everybody down, but probably can bounce back quicker economically. You know, regardless of what we know their economy is actually doing, I don't know about the data there always, there's always some, some thought about that. But regardless, just if they lock down immediately, which I'm not saying is the right thing to do or wrong thing to do, I don't know, but they probably have a little more ammo to come back quicker, which in theory could translate into um, you want strength. However, they may not even want that. So because they're export driven still and they're not ready to turn that switch. So just I think watching currency markets is going to be really, really telling and a much bigger issue going forward, as is trying to preserve the value of, of cash assets that you may hold because cash is absolutely a trade. And right now, the opportunity cost is probably negative 2% if you compare the 0% return on your cash to the inflation rate. Completely agree. So looking at a basket of currencies, do you see still continued dollar strength versus this the other currencies out there? I mean, I completely agree. I don't think the yuan anytime soon is going to want a super strong currency, right? It would just cripple their export market. Yeah. I think there's a, a possibility that we see kind of groups of countries come together and um, either agree to pegs between their currencies or agree to some sort of shared currency, you know, whether it's like, you know, the yuan being the predominant Asia region currency. I mean, stuff like that would make sense. I don't know. And I say makes sense. I mean, I, just, I could see that being kind of the natural path. I don't think the dollar plummets. I mean, by any means, but do I think over five years we see a natural, a, a slow erosion from that? I do, and I think we've already seen the the early signs of that as recently as the past three or four years when you see you know Russia settling crude sales to China in gold versus U.S. dollar. I mean, those are important deals. The less I kind of that key point is a lot of the value of our dollar is because of its global payment status, and as that gets eroded we have less of a vice hold on, on global payments we probably um, slowly weaken against other currencies. Now there's things we'll do and we can't do to combat that or to make it happen in the way that we want. And if I'm everyday American, maybe I don't even care because as long as my imported goods that I'm buying don't drastically increase in price, maybe I don't travel a lot. Maybe I don't own international assets. So I'm not that affected by it. So that's what you have to remember. But from a global wealth standpoint, Part of the reason the U.S. is so wealthy compared to everyone else is the fact that our, our currency is, is the, the gold standard, because that's originally where it came out of, oh, by the way, is we sneakily, uh, that we would be the payment um, settlement between gold settlement and us. And then when that went away, we were left standing as that, that base layer and, and we're the dominant currency. I mean, it's given us tremendous power and leverage over the global economy. And now, you know, it is a global economy. And if you have one currency as the lifeblood and one Federal Reserve government that's behind the amount of supply with this thing, like it's it's tremendous power. And you touched on a very good point. Uh, I was back visiting my family in Indiana in April. 
and I was just freaking out at the stimulus packages being being printed. And you know, it's like, what is what does this mean for my generation with this debt load? And I, I just came back right? to earth. Yeah, no, but I like talk to people, and they're like, "What? <laughs> no clue. What's going on?" You know, and it's like, oh, I'm. Uh, yeah, a lot of people don't really care. Their dollar still works. Uh, you know, yeah. like you said, they don't they don't own real estate in Cambodia or some other obscure place. So it's like, well, yeah, the dollar still works. It's it's fine. Everything. Yeah. So with these massive stimulus packages, drop in GDP, massive deficits, mm-hmm. you kind of touched on it a bit. Technology is deflationary. Great book by Jeff Booth, uh, The Price of Tomorrow. But this is the question, right? Inflation or deflation going forward? So kind of what's your view and why? I think shorter term deflation, uh, but and I mean by six to 12 months, um, just because things have slowed. But I do think over the longer term, there's inflation. Now, the question is, where? And I think what we've realized looking back in the wake of 2008, 2009, that inflation came into financial assets. And so here we are. I mean, when we came out of the uh, crisis of 08, 09, valuations, like you talk about valuations back then, I mean, they were single digit. For years, we were sitting in these 12, 14 times forward PEs, which looking back, like, man, what a steal. I mean, why, why weren't we loading up then? And then coming out of this crisis, we're at 22 times forward PEs or 21 times 2021 um, earnings. You know, I'm saying next year's earnings, which we're not even into the period of the year where we usually look to that. People are looking at 2021, 2022, which is, I guess, fine, but um, that's a long time to wait holding risk assets. So, I think that's what we've seen is, is certainly financial assets have been bid up. I don't think we'll see significant price inflation on the common goods and services used until we put new cash into the hands of the people, aka universal basic income, payments direct from the treasury to the people. When and as that starts to happen, we absolutely will see price inflation. I mean, if you look at Seattle and the $15 an hour minimum wage they went to, they've seen inflation. They've seen rents go up. They've seen um, hours worked go down because businesses can't afford it as much. So there's certainly more to it than just sort of putting money in the hands of people because prices adjust to that. And and we will see that in my view. Um, And then the other thing is just other more fixed assets, you know, the raw lands, things that have fixed supply, Bitcoin, (laughs) as we we talk about a lot. not necessarily, I mean, there's other risks involved with that, but certainly like raw land, gold, assets like that would, in theory, have some sort of, you know, whether or not they actually are, quote unquote, appreciating in value so much, because not necessarily the demand is increasing so much as just the monetary supply is increasing. There's a fixed supply, so that denominator um, is how it's how it's increasing in value. It sounds sounds like along the path we've started, it sounds like you would agree that universal basic income is kind of the outcome and the, the ultimate result of this, right? Seems like that's where we're headed. I mean, that's what we've done, certainly. We, we literally, the IRS was putting payments directly in the bank accounts of American citizens um, and has been paying between 10 and 25 million people as much or more than what they were making when they were working. And we're going on three, four months out of this. So I don't know what the hell I've been doing working and trying to earn my wages. I should have been making more in, on vacation, but, but I mean, that's, that's what we've done. And ironically, 
election time in four months here for you are, yeah, four months for, for U.S. citizens, and they've just had a healthy dose of cash into their bank accounts. So it's pretty easy to do the math, even, you know, if you just step away from your personal views and say, like, what is probably going to happen? People probably liked the fact that they got a bunch of payments from the government, and so they're probably going to vote for more of it. Yeah, certainly in the election year, they're not going not gonna to hold back, right? So speaking of election year, so, you know, I've read everywhere, you know, Biden is leading currently, this being recorded uh, Ju- July 14th. A-, a lot of it will be increasing tax rates, rolling back those tax cuts for U.S. corporations. Mm-hmm. And as you've said, I mean, these stocks are already expensive on a 21, 22 year uh, Ford PE basis. So you increase the taxes, the their earnings go down even more, so they get more expensive based on these. Yeah. So I mean, this this has got to be a tremendous headwind for equities. And even though he might have policies that are supportive of the stock markets in general and this macro outlook, I mean, how do you see these fighting it out with increased taxes as a headwind for equities? Yeah, I mean, without getting political. If Biden wins and we get a heavily democratically controlled Congress, or at least the, maybe the House is even more democratically controlled and the Senate's a break even or something, the policies they'll enact will not be liked by Wall Street, at least for U.S. stocks. And so you will see a valuation reset in America. I mean, that, that will happen because there is at least a 10 to $12 hit to um, S&P 500 earnings just from a corporate tax change. Um, and that's about, that's going to be about 8% probably out of realized earnings from this year. So that's a, that's a big hit to overcome. Um, you're going to see a lot more uncertainty. You're likely to see a lot more regulation. All these things slow investment. They slow the process by which capital changes hands and they slow the economy. So that's the bottom line. The other thing is income tax receipts are a much bigger part of um, government financing. And so you'll very, very likely see um, the upper tiers of of income tax rates go up quite a bit. Additionally, you're likely to see, according to the Biden um, plan, you're likely to see capital gain, long-term capital gains advantages over short-term capital gains in the U.S. So stuff that's sold in less than a year of holding period versus over one year of holding period probably going to be taken away. So interesting side effect to that, and I digress here, is we're probably going to see continued more volatility too, because suddenly there's no advantage to being, you know, holding things for the long term. You just make your decision based on the day of the week, not not based on on a on a yearly type basis. So um, it could increase stock market volatility as well. So I've read that you know the richest one percent of Americans account for more than half of the value of equities owned by U.S. households. As stocks continue to go up with quantitative easing, you know this is exacerbating the wealth gap as as it is. So the stock market just feels completely disconnected from the economy at this point, and many. Americans are starting, you know, growing in distrust of this thing. They've missed out on a lot of the gains in the past 10 years. So to these sorts of people, I think we've presented kind of the different cases for equities, but what what real alternatives do you see to the stock market for investable cash in this market? Well, one thing quickly on, on stock market access, I wish the access that is now available today was available to you and I when we were younger. I mean, it's unbelievable that you can trade for free and, and access it with small amounts of money and have no fee drag. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And something that goes un, unspoken and that has 
quietly died down into the background for this very reason is the hate toward high frequency trading. Do you know who enables Robinhood and everybody else to, to trade for free and allow retail access for free? It's selling their data feeds to high frequency traders. So you are paying a small tax, but it's still going to be less than the seven to $25 that you used to pay per trade. So it's interesting, you know, big, big trades that go through and get gobbled up by high frequency traders. Yeah. I mean, there's some moral issues with the whole deal, but an interesting side effect is that it's provided a ton of access for um, individual smaller investors. So stock market access to me, isn't the problem in terms of the financial divide in America. To me, the problem is this bank intermediaries and the way that they're discriminating against, um, against um, smaller investors. And I work for a bank and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone because it's all on the back of, of federal regulation at the end of the day. Um, if you don't allow bank and mar bank markets because banks and their lending to individuals is absolutely a market. The more you intervene in that market and tie the hands of the, of the lenders, the more that they're going to have to protect themselves from the risks that are being taken. So um, I see a lot of discrimination, not on the basis of anything that you could name, but discrimination in terms of good credits and bad credits and even good credits, meaning people who are flush with cash, perhaps they're a retiree and they, they, they might have a trouble getting loans. And, and the reason for that isn't because banks don't want to give it to them. It's because now there's so much regulation around cash flow that they have to have income they have to have and things like that. So I see, I do see a big divide in terms of loan availability there. I mean, it, Sounds like, I mean, so what, we go social credit system like China and, uh, you know, change this credit metric? I mean, there is a possibility that the Federal Reserve gets directly involved or, or through some sort of um, government-sponsored enterprise with uh, sort of retail America. I mean, why not? Especially as we go digital dollar, I mean, you could just have your bank account, your bank be the Federal Reserve Bank, and then it'd be easier to make direct universal basic income payments to them in the and all that. So I'm getting a little sidetracked there, but I mean, that's completely agree, right? It's going down that path. Um, or you just put a, a government sponsored entity that is behind the scenes sort of financing it, just like Freddie and Fannie Mac, Freddie, uh, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae. They're the reason most of America can get a mortgage. And that was started back in the 90s. So they're taking all the risk off the table um, for the banks that issue them or the, the loan originators that issue them. Ultimately, that ended in a housing bubble. And, and then the banks got blamed by, ironically, they were enabled absolutely by the federal government. So they, um, that's kind of interesting. I think your question though was um, around other assets to look at. I, I think, you know, if you have the ability to um, get exposed to some sort of real property in the form of rental homes or just property like that, I think that's, that's a pretty good store of value. I think land is a pretty good store of value. I think um, rental homes is a good cash flow source. So kind of those are, those are good and will always be in, always in need. You know, some other real estate stuff is definitely under stress, but I think those two are, are probably a fairly good place to, to look. And depending on the size, I mean, obviously there's access to stock markets and via stock markets, you can get access to other assets. I mean, I think gold is an interesting asset right now to preserve U.S. dollar value. I really do. If you look at the um, price action of gold in the wake of 0809, um, it, it nearly um, tripled after after that in, in the proliferation of cash. If you look at monetary supply where we're at now and the implied value of gold based on how much we've printed, it would be in the several thousands of dollars versus the 1900 um, or 1800-ish we're at right now. So, and that, that, that can be accessed through 
you know, an ETF, IAU or GLD, um, which are, are low cost ways to get exposure to that. Obviously yeah. the, the uh, crypto world too, you know, with uh, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum probably being the two leading assets there, but Bitcoin being somewhat anti-inflation. Um, yeah, this is, you're in my echo chamber. So I uh, no, definitely agree with gold and real estate and crypto. I think it's a, it's an interesting play, definitely highly speculative, very different from very different. real estate, but yes. exhibiting a lot of the same characteristics. So could be, and with more upside potential, right? So I think the, the risk return profile is rather interesting. So you mentioned real estate and land. Uh, so basically over the past two and a half, three years, I've been looking at single family rentals as an investment properties, you know, and it's just very difficult to find anything with an appropriate cap rate in a neighborhood that, you know, makes sense. Um, so it's curious, you know, when advising clients to dip their toe into real estate, uh, you know, are you doing this via publicly traded REITs? privately traded REITs, syndicates, uh, individual houses? I mean, what's kind of the spectrum of choices that you're, you're seeing as best alternatives? Yeah, I think it depends on, there's a few different ways you kind of sort that out. If you are a smaller investor and um, you don't want to be involved in operation, yeah, there's certain publicly traded REITs that are exposure to the rental home market. So there's, there's some names out there you could go specifically buy. Would I go out and buy VNQ, the broad real estate index? No, I'm not a fan of that. But if you want to get targeted exposure, there's a few names out there that, that are available and there that's liquid and that's, uh, you know, pretty easily accessible in, in small amounts. Um, if you're a larger investor, I do often see direct ownership of real estate, but then even then it does depend on whether you want to be an operator or you want to do it passively. If you want to do it passively, um, a lot of times there's good LP vehicles. There's even local LP vehicles a lot of times. And that, what I mean by that is that's private equity, private real estate, um, only available to accredited investors or qualified purchasers, which um, basically means you have to have a, a million or a few million of net worth and, and substantial income. So that's not available to everyone. Certainly on a smaller scale though, probably with, I don't know, 20 to $100,000, you know, you might be able to, to start your own deal buying, you know, sort of smaller properties um, and, and renovating and, and kind of building your own team and, and doing it that way. But that does require a lot of work um, and it requires building a network of people that know what they're doing. Um, I think once you have those properties, I think they're pretty easily rented. And as long as you keep your leverage low enough to where you have room to lower rents, if the economy gets hit, then um, I, I would think you'd be, you'd probably be okay there as well. So um, I think that's, that's interesting. Does that answer the question? It does. And I think with rates as low as they are in perspective, mm -hmm. you know, they'll be there for a long time. I think it can make sense. It's just a matter yeah. of finding the right deals, right? Find a deal flow. Mm -hmm. Yep. Do you have any, any thoughts on crowdfunded real estate websites, something like uh, Fundrise or, or Roofstock, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think those, and I, I've looked at Fundrise in the past um, and I, Roofstock, I, I probably need to look into. I'm not aware of it, but I, I'm sure it should be. But basically, yeah, crowdfunding, I mean, it's, it's like a smaller slice of an LP vehicle. I mean, you're a passive investor into someone who's going out and buying, putting the money in the ground and, and managing it for you for a fee and for some incentive likely um, of the return. But I mean, I think those are great vehicles. And I think, the, I mean, an individual, just broadly speaking, I can't speak to the specifics. I, don't, I won't 
recommend Fundrise because I don't remember exactly the deal there, but um, I'll say I'm aware of it. And at the time, it's, it's very interesting. So just looking at the underlying assets they're, they're purchasing, make sure you understand sort of the fee structure on those things because that can eat into it and, and read all the details of everything. But um, yeah, those can be great ways to get a slice of real estate. Yeah, I think the fees is the key of key aspect there, but it's it's convenience, right? I don't have to go yeah. look for these syndicates. I don't have to be accredited, uh, which I completely disagree with the accredited investor definition, obviously. I'm curious, for somebody like me who's getting more, you know, I don't want to go into the uh, single family r- rental uh, market and manage these myself, but what sort of high level asset allocation would you recommend for somebody, you know, looking for higher risk growth um, with kind of a a timeline of five years or so? Point in time, uh, I look at growth with kind of a safety view as well. Um, And what I mean by that is typically, you know, growth, you're you're going heavy into tech, you own a lot of small cap, mid cap stocks, um, a lot of stocks in general. But right now with where things are at, it's it's hard for me to say that. So I, I think Broadly speaking, you know, a growth allocation probably is somewhere around talking across all asset classes, uh, you know, stocks, bonds, um, alternative assets. I would say you're probably somewhere in the 70 percent, 60, 70 percent stocks. And I'm talking traditional, uh, traditional asset allocation versus accessing some of the more the newer technologies like we talked a little bit about um, crypto being a much higher bucket. So I won't include that necessarily, but um, somewhere in that, that probably 60, 60 to 70% stocks. I do think owning a, a chunk of, of cash here is good. Um, somewhere in that 10 to 15% range. And then probably the remainder in, in either that real estate or co- other commodities bucket. I don't like all broad commodities, but precious metals, um, real estate, and however you feel, fill that, that bucket in real estate um, is good. Real estate to me, isn't necessarily a growth as- asset as much as it is a, a inflation protection, a cash flow um, asset. I mean, it's, gr- it's a great piece of the wealth picture, um, but I would say probably most of the growth is going to be, um, continue to be in technology, technological breakthroughs, and a lot of that's going to be in stocks. So within stocks, I'd say keep probably two thirds to three quarters of it in the U.S. still. I still think the U.S. is probably the best place to be. Um, and then of, of that remainder, um, I usually just kind of barbell to emerging markets. Uh, be wary of, of China, but it's okay to have some exposure there. But, um, but just with a lot of shifting around, which will probably affect all markets, there's, there's some interesting stuff going on there. Um, within the U.S. bucket, I'm staying large, large well-capitalized companies. Um, so I, I wouldn't get much, too much into small cap or mid cap stocks at this time. And, and I think that would be a pretty good place to be in terms of getting into that allocation, just be disciplined about it. And, you know, don't, I mean, you've kind of seen even the past couple of days of, of markets, we're at really unprecedented times. So, so either take the view that you're seriously going to buy and, and forget about it for five years, or I'd probably be pretty cautious and say that over the next six months, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to get in. So yeah, that was actually kind of my next year is like, if you're sitting all in cash, you recognize this asset allocation, you're just divide that number by the next whatever weeks and put it in an equal equal buckets kind of thing. Absolutely. So interestingly, dollar cast averaging 
over the long term doesn't have a huge effect on your performance outcomes. But I would say that's still a very valuable tool because um, psychologically it allows you to get invested. Once you buy something at a higher price and you see it go down, you then think you're getting a good value. I mean, that's just how it goes. And uh, it's kind of hard the opposite sometimes, sometimes, but if you've bought some and prices go higher and you don't want to buy again, well, at least you have some. And so you're never going to be able to time things perfectly. And uh, this crisis we've just gone through and the response has been proof of that because there's no way you can predict what the Board of Governors for the Federal Reserve is going to come up with next. They may be buying stocks in six to 12 months and that, that I mean, it's very possible. So. Oh yeah, I actually think we will. So I, actually one more question about the allocation. So higher risk growth typically traditionally would be more allocated to emerging markets, right? Or, or yeah. small cap. It sounds like you're more US and more large cap. What's the reason there? Just more bullish on the US economy? Um, yeah, I think the US probably still wins because we we have the ability to do so kind of on the basis of what we talked about with currency and um, just investor confidence in our, our country, you know, emerging markets are where the true growth, sort of that organic growth will be for sure in the coming years. And so I, I, it can't be ignored. And I think will be an absolute much bigger piece of the puzzle in the coming decade. It's more of a, Hey, over the next one, two years, like a lot's going on in the wake of this coronavirus just stay to stay in a safer place where you have the opportunity to to go out in the risk spectrum when you feel like or when we you know just broadly some of this stuff has been worked through because we haven't worked through the details at all. In fact, we're just entering earnings season again um, for U.S. stocks, and this is really the only full quarter we have so far um, to to see what's happened. And so as we see what's happened, it'll be easier to be able to predict what's going to go going forward. Um, but there's a lot to work through. So stay large cap to stay safer. But ultimately, you know, the mix of, of domestic for a U.S. investor, I should say, the mix of, of U.S. To, to international stocks might be something closer to half and half and maybe 60, 40 of your of your equity bucket um, of that. You know, I'd still say the majority of the international probably goes into emerging markets um, for a U.S. investor. Um, there's a lot of studies to back that up. Um, and I would say within your US, U.S. bucket, you're then probably going to look more like you know, maybe a third to, to 40% of your stocks being U.S. large cap and then a major split across uh, mid cap and small cap. So I, I think there's going to be way more growth in mid cap and small cap companies over the long term. That's, that's a given. But right now, stay a little safer so you have the opportunity to, to make adjustments in the coming months. And with that allocation to cash, uh, you would recommend, you know, just money market funds, some sort of short-term bond ladder. You're not getting much yield either way, right? No, the only, I mean, I've, this has been a big pressing issue uh, because cash absolutely is, is, I mean, it's paying zero. I mean, you can buy two year treasuries and make 20 basis points. So 0.2%. That doesn't seem attractive to me. So, I'm honestly okay with just sitting on some actual cash right now because what we saw in, in March was this correlation of going to one and how even municipal bonds, I mean, were just blowing out to the point where you didn't want to sell them to buy something else because you knew you were taking impact. Sure enough, here a couple months later, they recovered and you're like, well, but at that time, the only thing that held its value really was extremely short-term treasuries and cash, literal cash. So I don't think it's a problem holding cash. What I would say is 
have a plan for it in the next one to two years. Now, the only place I see that's really attractive to put cash carries some risk. And, um, and so that you have to make that decision. I mean, in the bond market, what's probably attractive is, is still investment grade corporate bonds, um, even on the lower end of the scale and the triple B's um, because the federal reserve's backing all that up, but there could be volatility there. So it just kind of depends. I guess it's a hard question. If that cash is for investment purposes, it's probably okay to take some risk and buy stuff in that one or two year space, uh, maybe buy corporate bonds. You know, if you believe rates stay pretty stable, you could probably even buy some preferred stocks, which are much, much higher risk than other parts of bonds, but they pay a four or 5% yield. But um, if that cash is for any sort of payment, then, I mean, this is, we could see vol spike back up pretty quick. And um, without being too bearish, I just, you know, we saw pretty recently that when correlations go to one, everything suffers. Yeah, indeed. So much for those uh, those balanced asset allocations, right? <laughs> no, literally. It kind of makes you throw that in the waste bin, that portfolio management theory, because it's amazing. Yeah, all those years of studying out the window. It's just momentum. If it was worthless. <laughs> Peter, I could talk to you for hours about this. I mean, just every time we discuss something, you know, it it goes another line. So I really appreciate you taking the time going through all of this. I think think there's a ton of knowledge bombs in there that are going to be really, really helpful to my listeners. Uh, Finally, you know, just thank you again for coming on. And uh, how can people find out more or, or contact you if they're interested? Yes. I can probably provide my, my LinkedIn or something like that uh, for Ben to, to post in the comments. Sure. Yeah. I'll put that in the, in the show notes. Awesome. Peter, really appreciate it. Thanks again. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. It's good catching Thank up. You. <laughs> there we go. Peter Harlan with Wells Fargo. Hopefully you enjoyed that one. As always, you can find show notes, links, and more at altassetallocation.com or investinalts.com. And please share this with anyone you think might be interested, might benefit from listening to something like this. And as always, you can reach out to me for any feedback or questions. I'm happy to hear from you. Please give the video a like or even better subscribe on YouTube or your podcast player of choice. And this really helps with the algorithms and helps others find it as well. Really appreciate it and hope everyone has a great day. Good luck out there.